open to the Lord in prayer. Father, guide us, direct us now. Guide this pastor as he battles his jet lag to be able to stay focused upon your word because that's what matters most. Speak to the hearts of a wide range of people in all these services. Spiritually curious one who's trying to figure out the meaning of life, the purpose of life, why I'm here, where is all this headed? Speak into that soul the truth of your word. So we're praying now as we ponder the sufficiency of your grace that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. As again now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremy Buma has been associated with that wonderful church in D.C., Capitol Hill, and he tells about an experience that he and the co-author of a book they penned uh, had to say with regard to the grace of God. I never dreamed that taking a child to Disney World could be so difficult, or that a trip could teach me so much about God's grace. Our middle daughter had been previously adopted by another family. I'm sure this couple had the best of intentions, but they never quite integrated the adopted child into their family of biological children. After a couple of rough years, they dissolved the adoption, and we ended up welcoming an eight-year-old girl into our home. For one reason or another, whenever our daughter's previous family vacationed at Disney World, they took their biological children with them, but they left their adopted daughter with a family friend. Usually, at least in the child's mind, this happened because she did something that precluded her presence on the trip. And so by the time we adopted our daughter, she had seen many pictures of Disney World. And she had heard about the rides and the characters and the parades. But when it came to passing through the gates of the Magic Kingdom, she had always been the one left on the outside. Once I found out about this history, I made plans to take her to Disney World the next time a speaking engagement took our family to the southeastern United States. He did. They did. And when it happened, here was her response. Daddy, I finally got to go to Disney World. But Daddy, I know it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. There are false apostles on the scene in Corinth who are questioning whether or not Paul truly belongs to Jesus. Physically afflicted he is, and so they had a way of boasting about their oratorical strengths, their, their natural abilities to be able to draw a crowd, and so boasting was something that seemed to be part of the value system of those that would be communicating anything religiously in that Corinthian setting. Paul recognized that. So what I want to do is to explore God's grace 
the sufficiency of God's grace in these verses that God, in the time that God gives us. I'm going to draw out three significant areas where I see God's grace is sufficient to meet needs. And the first comes out of verse 1 through 4. And we're going to put it like this, that God's grace is sufficient to meet our needs, number one, in the midst of the supernatural claims being made in life. Islam makes supernatural claims that Allah has revealed himself to Muhammad. Mormonism makes supernatural claims. Joseph Smith had received visions from God. We live in a global community of supernatural claims. The question is, but which claim is valid and which claims are invalid? And this is the situation now that the Apostle Paul enters into because there are those who are false prophets, false apostles who are making supernatural claims that they have had an encounter with God and has been revealed to them through visions and other such things. They boast about it. And the Corinthians are used to their boasts. And as a result of their boasts, they receive payments for what they had to say about God. Where do you go with that? Well, values are placed upon boasting in Corinth, and Paul's going to have to figure out how to use a boast as it relates to God rather than to self. So he's going to watch how he references himself, but at the same time, he's going to have to speak of the fact that he too had visions and the likes and dreams. And so he begins in verse 1 with these words, I must. I must go on boasting. But now the question is, as he begins to go on boasting, how is he going to distinguish himself from the false apostles that appeared on the scene in Corinth? Watch how he does this. There's lessons for you. There's lessons for me. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. And the Apostle Paul had, in fact, received visions and revelations of the Lord. As a matter of fact, he even did so in Corinth, of all places. Because if you were to read very carefully in the book of Acts, what you will find in that description of the time in which the Apostle Paul was in Corinth, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. So now, Paul knows something about this experience, but his experiences are valid by the fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, he knows that this is not the purpose for him to be able to get an audience. I'll go on. He's going to speak of the visions and the revelations of the Lord, yet he doesn't share the content like the false apostles did with regard to all their encounters with God. No, he is rather discreet, isn't he, in what he says. He just references visions and revelations of the Lord. But now you're up to verse 2. And in verse 2, he doesn't say, I was the man in Christ. No. Watch how he, he, he distances himself from himself because he wants to maintain humility and offer the boast where the boast would be valued in the Corinthian mindset, but be a pin it to Christ rather than himself. And so he says, I know a man. We know who that man is. It's the Apostle Paul. A man 
in Christ. Now we've studied very carefully, if you have been around just a little bit, about the whole significance of what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be under Christ, to be able to stand upon Christ, to be able to go through life with Christ. But this in Christ thing is something of high significance, isn't it, to the Apostle Paul? For example, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You see, if you came here, I think you just came to a church in Sheboygan, what I want to challenge you is to consider what it means to be in Christ in a church this morning in Sheboygan. Because being in Christ gives you a new status. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You see, Paul knew you get a new status. You get a new life. And as he would have reminded the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians in particular, in chapter 5, verse 17, those that are in Christ Jesus, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I'm in a hospital, and I'm visiting a particular patient, and as I visit that particular patient, and perhaps you remember the scenario a few years back, I had been speaking, teaching on this whole matter of being in Christ, and the man looks up at me from his hospital bed as the physician was leaving the room, and he said, Gary, I've come to this conclusion. And I said, well, well what's that? He said, it's better to be in Christ in a bad body than to be outside of Christ in a good body. Now, the Apostle Paul is going to have to grapple with his body. In this passage, he's going to talk about a thorn in the flesh. And maybe this morning you are going through something physically and it's challenging you, but what you've got to begin with is not your body, but your Savior. I know a man in Christ. That's your starting point. Well, you get to your body. But I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Now, when I reached that point in my study, and don't you, when it says 14 years ago, what? tells me at this point, he doesn't say 14 minutes ago. In essence, what he's saying is that this supernatural encounter, this mystical experience, was not my norm. Extremely rare. You're going to be in a highly spiritualized environment year after year where people are going to talk about their mystical encounters. Paul's reticent. He's got to go back 14 years for this one. For God to validate, once again, his authenticity as an apostle, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now, I've been fascinated by that because the Jews of that time period often spoke of what we'll call multiplicity of heavens. Even in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10, Paul spoke of all the heavens, speaking of the whole universe. You want to draw a line from that particular verse 
down to what comes next. Because you go on to read, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. And so on one hand, it's the third heaven. On the other hand, it's the paradise. And you are pondering the significance of Jesus Christ on that cross who turns to the thief and says, Today, you shall be with me in paradise. And this whole inness is something of significance in this body and in paradise and so on. And I got to think about that when Jay Kessler had penned these thoughts of several years back. There are two ways of handling pressure in this world. One is illustrated by a bathysphere, the miniature submarine used to explore the ocean in places so deep that the water pressure would crush a conventional submarine like an aluminum can. Bathyspheres compensate with plate steel several inches thick which keep the water out, but also make them heavy and hard to maneuver. Inside, they're cramped. And when the craft descends to the ocean floor, you find you're not alone. When the lights are turned on and you look in through the tiny, thick plate glass windows, you see fish. And these fish cope with extreme pressure in an entirely different way. They don't build thick skins, they remain supple and free. They compensate for the outside pressure through equal and opposite pressure inside themselves. And then Jay Kessler went on to write, Christians, those who are in Christ, don't have to be hard and thick-skinned as long as they appropriate God's power within to equal the pressure without. For greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And now you find the paradox of it all, that you are in Christ, if you know Jesus is Lord and Savior, and Christ is in you. And now you have this tremendous sense of balance so that the outward pressures don't overwhelm the inward person, but rather the inward person resigns, and you have a sense of balance in this fallen world. The inwards and the outwards of life based upon being in Christ, you see. And so he says, I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. What interests me then at this point, it seems as though the Apostle Paul is less interested in whether he had a bodily experiences than he simply had an experience with God. Which says something about the American culture of today. But he says, God knows. Now, the false apostles, the false prophets would have said, we know. We know exactly what we were experiencing. They have gone into great detail with regard to it. But on the other hand, Paul, there's tremendous humility here. And so he says, I frankly don't know, but God knows. And he heard things this man did, speaking of himself, that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And what captures my attention at this point, you see, is that Paul doesn't overexpose his experience with God. There's something restricted here, something incredibly personal here. He's not the sort of person of a tell-all where he's just going to lay it all out there on his life experiences. 
He knows what's to be revealed, and he knows what's to be concealed, and he creates that sense of balance because God had placed him under restrictive orders as to what could be and what shouldn't be shared, even though if he had said more, it might validate, at least in the eyes of the Corinthians, his credentials. But he's depending upon God, not the Corinthians, as to you and as to I. God's grace is sufficient to meet the needs, our needs, in the midst of all the supernatural claims being made in life. And when you're overseas, there's going to be supernatural claims being made in Islam and elsewhere. But God validates it through the resurrected Savior. And if you go into, like I did, into the Garden of Gethsemane, and if you go where I did, into the place where Joseph of Arimathea had his setting and where the tomb is, you're struck with the value and the validity of location and the credibility of the scriptures that also argue for the authenticity of who Christ is and what Christ has done. It's your God. There's a second now area I want you to explore with me in God's sufficient grace. It's found in verses 5 and 6. Second of all, God's grace is sufficient to meet our needs in the midst of the verbal boastings being endured in life. On behalf of this man, he's still talking about himself, but he doesn't refer to himself. I will boast, okay, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. While the false apostles in Corinth were boasting about their strengths, if Paul is going to boast, he's going to boast about his weakness, and we'll find why in just a moment. But then he adds in verse 6 these words, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. In other words, he wants to make absolutely certain that in the sense of his authenticity, People sense biblical humility. And people are looking for authenticity in the Christian life. And when they sense you're a very gifted person, I know you are, but with your giftedness, you combine it with a humbleness. And you're more prone to want to talk about Jesus, frankly, than about yourself, unless push comes to shove and you've got to talk about yourself, but then you do so in relationship to Jesus. You've got balance that people are looking for in this highly imbalanced but yet yearning for authenticity world that we find ourselves in. And then I remember the story of Benjamin Franklin. He used to tell it about his return visit to Boston when he was a 21-year-old. He went to Pastor Cotton Mather, well-known. And this is, in Franklin's words, what happened. Pastor Mather received me in his library and on my taking leave, he showed me a shorter way out of the house through a narrow passage, which was crossed by a beam overhead. We were still talking as I, as I withdrew, and he accompanying me behind, when he said hastily, Stoop! Stoop! Well, I didn't understand him until I hit my head against the beam. He was a man that never missed any occasion of giving me instruction. And so upon this encounter with the beam, he said to me, Benjamin, you are young. You have the world before you. Benjamin, stoop as you go through life. You'll miss many head bumps along the way. And I thought of humility at that point. 
a giftedness and a humbleness in the Apostle Paul. Authenticity and humility to mark this congregation where we take the gifted people in all these services, but when people in this culture, Sheboygan culture and so on, they're looking for authenticity in Christianity, they sense that you are in Christ, even if your body's gone bad. Better to be in Christ in a bad body than to be outside of Christ in a good body. And then you're able to talk about God and the extreme difficulties and the extreme challenges of life and draw attention to the authenticity of Christ and the authenticity of the scriptures that are willing to be scrutinized and evaluated because, as I say to this E.R.N.S. from Scottsdale, Arizona, isn't it fascinating how God has allowed for his word and his works to be so evaluated that people can look at all the various locations, location, 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 as the real estate agent would remind you, and tell you at this point then that it was historically and archaeologically validated, and then you stand there in that, in that setting where Joseph of Arimathea had, you see, this tomb. And people, the tomb's empty, validation. And so you ponder these things. The supernatural claims being made in life of one through four, the verbal boastings endured in life five through six and all the false religions. But now thirdly, and I want to camp on this, thirdly, the physical sufferings being experienced in life, which some of us are encountering right now, seven through ten. So, so, to keep me now all of a sudden he starts talking about himself. <laughs> Look where he begins to do so. You see the humility here? To keep me from being conceited, becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. So it is the apostle Paul all along. As he now talks about himself. All of a sudden he tells us, a thorn was given me in the flesh. This tells me this didn't happen at birth. This happens subsequent to the second birth. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, as you and I explore all the various metaphors in the Bible of suffering, it's the metaphor of the furnace. It's the metaphor of the storm. You go through the storms of life. Second Timothy 2.3, the metaphor of warfare. Childbirth in Jeremiah 4, verse 31. Many women know of this. Here the metaphor is the thorn. Second Corinthians 12, verse 7. And so sometimes you ask yourself, and why am I going through what I'm going through? Why is my loved one going through what my loved one's going through? Well, there's at least, as I've shared in prior times, eight different reasons why people suffer according to the Scriptures. But let me just draw out two of them this morning for you from Second Corinthians alone. One of which is found in chapter 1. Because in chapter 1, which we explored when we began this book earlier this year, Paul had written, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. 
One of the reasons why you're going through what you're going through is to comfort others who are going through what you have gone through, and you can draw attention to the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, who suffered, died, and was raised from the dead. There's empathetic suffering from 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4. But there, here in chapter 12, verse 7, is what I'll call protective suffering, where sometimes you and I are called to suffer in order to protect us from something else. In this case, you and I are told here that the Apostle Paul was being protected from conceit to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. And now, lo and behold, you and I see that here is another way in which it seems as though Satan and God are going at it, just as in the book of Job. What Satan's strategy? To harass me. What's God's strategy? To keep me from becoming conceited. So now you and I are grappling with what's the purpose of the struggle? Do you remember the story? Man found a cocoon of the emperor moth, took it home to watch it emerge. One day a small opening appeared. For several hours the moth struggled but couldn't see, seem to force its body past a certain point. Deciding something was wrong, the man took scissors and snipped the remaining bit of cocoon. The moth emerged easily, its body large and swollen, the wings small and shriveled. And he expected that in a few hours the wings would spread out in their natural beauty, but they did not. Instead of developing into a creature free to fly, the moth spent its life dragging around a swollen body and shriveled wings. For you see, the constricting cocoon and the struggle necessary to pass through the tiny opening, it's God's way of forcing fluid from the body into the wings. The merciful snipping of that cocoon was in reality cruel. Not merciful. Because in God's sovereign purposes, in God's sufficient grace, sometimes the struggle is exactly what we need in order to fly. For as I penned in this week's bulletin insert, rather than relief from suffering, the Apostle Paul was provided with grace through suffering. Because in verse 8, he says three times, not once, not twice. Three times I pleaded with the Lord. These are three separate sustained periods of prayer, seeking relief. You ever been there? Maybe that's where you are right now. I pleaded. It's a very intense word in the Greek. I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But look at what he said. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect 
in weakness. And while the false apostles thought that their power was found in their strength, the apostle Paul knows that God has chosen to weaken him so that the power would not be confused in the eyes of the people. They'd be prone to say, well, look at how powerful God is versus look how powerful Paul is. They would lean towards the latter and Paul would want them to see the former. Likewise, if you are in a weakened condition right now, ask yourself whether God has positioned you in that weakened condition so that rather experiencing relief from the suffering, God is providing you with grace through the suffering so that people would be able to see God's power rather than your power on full display. Grace. Grace at work. So what does he do at this point? He says, therefore, here's my life principle. I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, not me. For the sake of Christ, then, is this you? I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, and now what I call the paradox of pain. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For as C.S. Lewis would pen it, mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it is more common and also more hard to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It's easier to say my tooth is aching than to say my heart is broken. And then again, we can ignore even pleasure. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And it's possible what you are going through right now is such that you become the megaphone that God is using to reach others in your family for Christ, to reach others at work for Christ, to reach others that you haven't even met for Christ. And when they bump into you and they figure out you are one in Christ, then you're going to be able to nod your head when you think about what that little girl said. Daddy, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. Are you his? Let's stand together. Sufficient grace. Too many times Christians are thinking there's insufficient grace because I haven't experienced relief. But then Jesus on that cross said it is finished. Sufficient. Not to be added to. Not to be subtracted from. I pray that now at the end of the second service, likewise,
If there's anyone here who's been pondering this whole matter of what it means to be in Christ, that they would look very carefully, am I outside of Christ or am I in Christ? And accept the fact that sometimes life is hard even when you are in Christ. But nonetheless, better to be in Christ in a bad body than outside of Christ in a good body. And I pray that we make absolutely certain, each and every one of us, we are in Christ, putting faith and trust in the one who said it is finished. And for this we give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.